0: I feel like this is fitting because, like, there was a lot of talk about Star Trek and whatnot with the previous hosts. And now we can move into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's a whole cinematic universe. I started watching Battlestar Galactica. Oh, there was was definitely – there's that new Star Trek that was coming out. Uh, The one that was coming on TV.
1: Once again, I started watching (laughs) Battlestar Galactica.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Battlestar Galactica is fantastic.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Good stuff. Okay.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris Sumi, your host, and I'm joined today by Rachel Matthew.
1: Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. So, Rachel, it is very exciting to, uh, to have you here to join and chat about all sorts of things. You've been on some technological adventures, I'd say, lately that mm-hmm. I'm super intrigued by.
1: I think that we've had an interesting journey at ThoughtBot because you have gotten me excited about certain technologies and I feel like over the course of a year we've kind of had like a very intertwinkled path of things that we're excited about learning.
0: Intertwinkled. That is my new favorite word. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We've uh, sort of bounced on and off of projects and sort of conversations and and things like that. And as a result, I think we've had some overlap, but I think you've also gotten to run with a bunch of things that I was excited about, but haven't dug into as much. So Mm -hmm. so let's talk about some of them. So let's start with Scala, because that is a language that I'm super intrigued by in a whole ecosystem and a world, Mm -hmm. but I actually haven't done much in it. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with Scala, what your experience with it's like, and and we'll kind of run from there.
1: Yeah, I've been on a few Scala projects now. The first Scala project that I was on with you was for a lovely company. They help target Amazon advertisers and help them to kind of improve the ads that they're bidding for, help them to like get more value out of the ads that they buy on Amazon. Um, And so they were using Scala as their back end, they were transitioning from a Rails stack to a Scala stack to improve performance. That was the first project that I was on at Thoughtbot and I think yep. you rolled off right as I rolled
0: on. I think that's true. We were like uh, ships in the night.
1: Yeah. yeah. It was also my first Scala project and it was like dipping my toe a little bit mm-hmm. in Scala where I was like getting very excited. It was It was nice to have a compiler coming off of like a lot of Ruby projects and mm-hmm. it was interesting to see things that are like very core to the Scala language, like implicits that I never worked with mm-hmm. a bunch. Though now I have a lot of feelings right. about implicits that mm, I'm not sure. Maybe we should get into it. It's a complicated
0: feature. Well, we yeah. should probably Later. real quick do a high-level summary for anyone that's listening and isn't as familiar with Scala. Mm-hmm. So let's see if I can do this justice. And please correct me if and where I, I got any of this wrong. Yeah, Scala is a language that targets the JVM, so the Java virtual machine. It compiles to JVM bytecode primarily. That's its, its core target. Mm-hmm. It's multi-paradigm, so it does functional programming. It, it embraces functional programming, but it also supports more traditional object-oriented stuff. And I think the other thing that you were alluding to there is the idea that it has a compiler. So Mm -hmm. behind the scenes, it's running. It's got a very strong type system, and it's going to watch your code and basically run the algorithm to determine if your program holistically works together, if all of the types line up and all the functions can connect together in the way that you've strung them together.
1: That was an amazing explanation. <laughs> 10 out of 10, yeah.
0: Wow, thank you. That's uh, 10 out of 10. Would uh, would listen again to <laughs> Chris describe the fella.
1: Would ask Chris to explain things to me again, which, do you get it? Because your last name is to me. Oh, I
0: do. I, yeah. You know, I didn't even get it when you said it, so oh, I'm oh glad God, that, that you so highlighted good. the joke that you made, because somehow I didn't notice my own name there. Mm, Not I, sure what to do with that, but here we are. But so let's talk a tiny bit about the compiler bit because you yeah. highlighted that as a, as a feature that you liked. And I think that's something that in the languages that I've been working with primarily of late, I do not have one of those. And I'm sad to not have one You know
1: one of those. what was really hard for me at first, which is going to sound like very silly, but I came from Ruby. Mm-hmm. And so I, I now have this compiler. and I was like, awesome. The compiler will just tell me where to go. Yep. And just fix old things. It's very hard at first at least it was for me to understand like, what the compiler errors were saying. Mm-hmm. Now, when I write Scala and the compiler complains, the majority of errors, I'm like, that's so clear. I know exactly <laughs> what to fix, know exactly like what, like, what this abbreviation means. Right. But I think there's a thing where you learn a new language and you have to learn, like, they have slightly different error messages and you have to learn like, where to look. Mm-hmm. like Finding the documentation that you find useful and that you understand yep. is a challenge. Even just
0: something like the order of stack traces. Like, Ruby switched that, I think, in a recent version. Yeah. And that's something you have to know. Exactly. That makes a big difference, it turns (laughs) out. Like, JavaScripts are different in other ways. And Mm -hmm. the idea of having to learn how to interface with a language and how to understand the feedback that it's giving you definitely makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I think that once I got to the point where I would run into an error in Scala and I could, like, know which documentation I was trying to get to, Mm You know, that's like the point where like I felt like the boulder was like slowly rolling down the hill, and I was right. picking up a little more speed. But in general, having a compiler is amazing. I like that there's like a certain amount of confidence when I make a change, and I, I follow all the compiler errors, mm-hmm. and I get to that place where it's building again. I have so much confidence in like what the code is doing, and it's also a little bit like you know when you do TDD, and when you write your first test, that's the part where you're you're thinking of like what do I really want to test? Like, what should this feature be doing? Mm-hmm. And then after that, you're just kind of following the errors. Yep. Yeah. There's not as much, like, active thinking, I guess.
0: Yeah, that, that's a do- thing that I've seen highlighted and I think is is worth focusing on in the world of, like, functional strongly typed coding mm-hmm. where people think, like, oh, well, I'm I'm not a math whiz. I'm not smart enough for that is mm. the thing that I've heard people say. Or they view it as this more academic you've got to bring more to the table to even be able to program in that world mm-hmm. but I've heard consistently from folks who have made the jump and have been, have invested and have been able to work in those languages that they value it because they can be less yeah they can like think less during any given day or at any given point in time
1: exactly and you could spend more time thinking about kind of that higher level problem mm-hmm. what you want to be solving I definitely feel that for certain languages where I look at Haskell and I'm like, ah, scientists use Haskell, <laughs> not a scientist. This is yep. a joke that I also crack. All the, it's like my one Haskell joke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you got to have that one Haskell joke. It's, you got to be ready.
1: Yeah, I know. Maybe I should get a different one. <laughs> but
0: uh yeah, sure. Go go learn a little bit of it, and then yeah. come back with like a <laughs> more nuanced, subtle joke that only Haskellers would get. Oh man, Then, I feel you know, real you're, cool. Just <laughs> but I've definitely the other thing that you were saying there of like it took you a little while to learn how to read and parse out the compiler error messages, mm-hmm. and once you did, you were able to use that more. But one of the things that I've heard about various different compiled languages is that there are better and worse error messages. Like, yeah, oh, that definitely. is something that. The people that are actually developing the language and the compiler and the runtime and all of that, Mm -hmm. some of them spend more time on it. Some of them spend a bit less time. Certainly Mm -hmm. the little bit of time that I spent in Haskell, I found those messages very opaque, very Uh. hard to read and follow. (laughs) But to contrast that, the Elm language has spent a ton of time trying to make their error messages as friendly as possible, even to Mm -hmm. the point that they... They print out a little paragraph that's like, hey, as I was following the types, as they flowed through your program, I noticed something that didn't line up. You used a string here, but I think you meant to use an integer.
1: Wow, that's the kind of thing that warms my heart yeah. as a developer. They
0: like, draw little red squigglies, they'll print out the line of code, mm. and they'll highlight things, and it's very, very impressive what they're able to do. Yeah. It's really great that they put that amount of effort into it. Mm-hmm. TypeScript actually just recently released version 3, uh, and part of what they did with that was to improve error messages. Yeah. And it, they Basically, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the release notes that are like, we did this and this, and look at all these great things, and now there's this other fancy higher kind of type thing that you can do. I don't know that that's a real higher kind of type of phrase that means something, and we talked about it in previous episodes, so I want to be careful with that. But mm-hmm. We've added all of these wonderful features, but mm-hmm. also, here's a screenshot of what the error message used to look like, and here's what it looks like now. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, sold. That's it. That's the thing that I wanted. I wanted it to just tell me when I use a string and it should be an integer got it mm,
1: yeah i think scala is like very half and half some of their error messages are super clear and know exactly what to do and some of their error messages are say you're like missing an import mm-hmm. from something it'll throw like a completely like unrelated change mm-hmm. and you're like oh i can't find this implicit where you're like oh i didn't even know that you wanted that <laughs> why are you asking for it
0: <clears throat> i didn't think that was the thing <laughs>
1: just I had an interesting experience with uh, Alex, who's another developer here at Thoughtbot. We're working on a project together this Friday. And he hadn't done any Scala, but he does a lot of Android. And so mm-hmm. he's kind of familiar with just working with typed languages. Yep, um, between
0: Java and Kotlin or the yeah, two that he's using. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. He mentioned that like, from looking at the compiler errors, he felt like Scala was a little less beginner friendly, mm. which I think there's like a sweet spot where you have a good perspective of you go from being a beginner and you're like, I don't know what any of this means to you're a little bit better, but you remember like the challenges that you faced and then you use the compiler for a long time and you're like, it's so clear, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah, you forget what it's like to be a beginner, and you forget that that thing that now is very clear to you is mm-hmm. completely opaque to someone who doesn't have that.
1: So. Yeah, which I think is why it's so important, like, to learn in groups, and, to, like, mm. it's not only important to have people who are really good at a language teach you, but it's also important to have people who can relate to you.
0: Yep. Yeah. There's a, uh, oh, I forget what the name of it is, but there's that idea that... The ideal person to teach you something is the person who's one rung above you on that learning ladder because yeah. they still have the empathy for the types of problems and the types of misunderstandings that you all be having at that mm-hmm. point.
1: That makes mm-hmm. so much sense to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So now we can do this at ThoughtBot from time to time where we have mm-hmm. one person who climbs their way up the ladder, fights to get to the top, <laughs> and then like throws down a rope and starts to pull everybody up and then that person pulls the next person up and yeah. But I think that's a really good model for how learning should happen in most organizations.
1: No, I totally agree. Yeah, and there's definitely a camaraderie of like if you're pairing with someone who's maybe like slightly more experienced than you and you guys reach a problem that you know both of you aren't familiar with, debugging that together, I think mm-hmm. it's like a really sweet spot of yeah. solidifying understanding.
0: There are certain classes of things that I think uh, lend really well to pairing specifically. Mm-hmm. Things like, we're gonna design a new architecture within the system, a new feature, like a new big thing. Oh, okay, I think basically yeah. as a rule, that should be done with a pair. That, oh, should, so that should not be one person just off on their own.
1: Because that often becomes like, all right, I've changed every file. <laughs> I feel lost. Yep. Yeah.
0: And so someone else trying to review that is like, yep, seems like you changed all the things. <laughs> uh, I bet you thought pretty hard about this. So <laughs> cool, looks good to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, Matt, another developer here at Thoughtbot, made a really big refactor in our project that if he hadn't like constantly been like, talking to me about Mm -hmm. what he was planning. And if we hadn't constantly been looking at code together, I would have just been like, either burn it all down
0: or just
1: don't (laughs) do it. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I've talked with Matt a few times about his work on Skull. And one of the things that he's highlighted is that the compiler is amazing. Mm -hmm. The compiler lets you dig into a large scale refactoring basically anywhere. You start somewhere, you change a fundamental data structure, and Mm -hmm. then you just follow the error messages. Yeah. You keep chasing down and you fix all of them. And then suddenly you get to the end and you're like, Okay, I I changed 2,000 lines, uh, and I fundamentally re-architected the system. Uh, okay. Uh, and basically what he was describing is that may not be great. Mm-hmm. Like it's great that he's able to do that and that a developer in a large-scale system like that is able to make that sort of sweeping change and still have confidence in it. Mm-hmm. But now for a reviewer of that PR, you're oh. like, uh, b- cool. <laughs>
1: But yeah, I will, I will say
0: to your credit, I lurk in our Scala channel in Slack, uh-huh. uh, which is mostly just you and Matt having conversations right now, and it's, <laughs> it's great. But occasionally, I noticed something that you'll do, which is there's a large PR that comes through and you're like, what, can we talk about this one in person? Can we walk through this together? And I think that's a great habit to be in is like, this mm-hmm. is big enough that this warrants some face words. and
1: Yeah, I think that both of us are um, definitely the type of developer where we it, we see something large and we're like, okay. I maybe don't understand this, and that's okay, and you're going right. to have to explain it to me.
0: I think that statement right there is one mm-hmm. of the most undervalued and important statements of like, mm-hmm. huh, I don't understand this. Yeah. I'm okay with saying that out loud. <laughs> I don't feel bad. I feel like, this is a lot of code. This is a big change. And it is perfectly reasonable for me to say, I don't understand this. Mm-hmm. I see from time to time when I go into client projects, cultures vary from organization to organization. and. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we try pretty hard to encourage is like everybody's going to have a different knowledge set. Being comfortable raising your hand and saying, I don't know, Mm -hmm. is a super important thing to do. And I'll actually go to the point that whenever I'm new at a client, I sort of have a built in lack of knowledge. Yeah. And I also have sort of, I've I've attempted to build this resiliency up in myself to be like, all right, I'll raise my hand and say, I'm the one who doesn't know. (laughs) But... I'll lean on that even more strongly when I join a team. I'll be like, I actually do know what this one means, but it's an acronym it, that we yeah. keep throwing around and I can see some people sort of disconnecting when that one's said. So I'll ask that question somewhat proactively mm-hmm. and try and be the canary in the acronym mine. That's yeah, a terrible analogy, so but here true. we are.
1: Oh man, it's really easy when you're just in an organization for a long time to just forget like what the actual underlying thing means. And yep. sometimes you'll be like, oh, what does that acronym mean? And just no one will know.
0: Oh, like, those are the <laughs> best. I mean, the ones where like everyone has a shared understanding of what it represents, but no yeah. one can actually define what the letters <laughs> of the acronym mean.
1: Yeah, it's such a good moment when they're all like, mmm.
0: Right. No, that's that report. But I actually have no idea why it's called the SGM report. That's just that's just what we call it. But yeah, so Scala's cool. You're enjoying your time on Scala? I am. Would Scala again?
1: I would. I'm going to Scala just as much as I can find time for, as much mm-hmm. as like if the projects are there. I think I'll yeah. keep doing it.
0: So to break this down a little bit further, the first project that you were describing, that Scala work was more of a data processing, streaming, mm-hmm. big awkward data sort of space. Yeah. Uh, awkward data being a phrase that our CTO, Joe Ferris, uses from time to time. <laughs> have, you, have you heard him use I that? I haven't
1: heard that, but that's, a, that's really good. Yeah.
0: It's that, like, we're not talking about Google-level just petabytes of nonsense mm. data flowing through the internet, but we're talking yeah. about a lot. Like, Excel will <laughs> definitely not open this file, and frankly, Ruby's going to blow up and use all the memory, so we need to be thinking about streaming as a first-class concern. We need yeah. to be thinking about... Ways that we might be able to split up the work and paralyze it, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think Scala was a very natural fit there. And to talk, actually, that, yeah. that project was super interesting because we came in and with MVP mindset, we needed to get a product out there into the world. Mm-hmm. And so we built the first version entirely in Ruby and Rails. Mm-hmm. We had a pretty complicated background job system that was doing all the computations and the number crunching and the whatnot. uh, And the whole app worked, uh, Mm -hmm. the first simple version of it. And the client was able to go off and sell it and like, perfect, that's a win. But very quickly the app started (laughs) to fall over and there were some nights Mm -hmm. where I had to like go in and try to manually delete lots of records and do (sighs) database migrations to go to the next tier. And just, it was not going to be a sustainable path forward. Luckily, Joe, our CTO had the foresight to see that coming. And got out in front of it and started to work on a reimplementation in Scala, mm-hmm. and I think that absolutely shined. I think everything about that felt like the right approach. Yeah, the timing of the transition happened. I think just in time for that new data processing engine to show up and take over. Mm-hmm. But I think that is a place where Scala is going to be really strong. Yeah, can leverage all of the stuff that Java has. Uh, that's one of the other features that we didn't talk about when we described Scala, but mm-hmm. it can use anything in Java land cool. That seems neat. There's a lot of Java code out there. Yeah. But now the project that you're on is also a Scala project, but it is a more traditional web app, something that we probably could have entertained with Rails, but we ended up doing Scala, if my understanding is correct.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. We also did not go for um, Play is like the big established Scala web framework Mm -hmm. that comes with like a router and controllers and Really much nice. closer to rails, yeah, much closer yeah. to rails, and it had all those things built in, and we chose to go with this library called HTTP for mm-hmm. which is not as built out. It doesn't come with like an established convention of like what a controller would look like mm-hmm. or what a router would be. And I you know, not to toot our own flutes, <laughs> but I think that those decisions ended up being really good, interesting. yeah. We definitely sacrificed some speed in the beginning when we Mm -hmm. were, you know, there's some things that one Rails or play just come like fully built out Mm -hmm. with this whole MVC flow that we kind of had to figure out a little bit. And also just learning how to do some things in Mm -hmm. Scala that I already knew how to do in Rails is definitely slower. But we were interfacing with this very interesting API that was not consistent. Was it a
0: REST API?
1: It was a SOAP API. Ah, uh, SOAP. Which I had never used a mm-hmm. SOAP anything, and so Joe had started the project like two weeks before I rolled onto it. And SOAP comes with this thing called a WSDL, mm-hmm. which I'll so SOAP listeners...
0: is an acronym that I don't know what it stands for.
1: Oh no, <laughs> I also Do you? don't. Okay, know okay. What so it we're in one for. of those
0: WSDL. I think Web Service Discovery Language or something Disco- like that. Yeah,
1: it's like I know what it does. This is the exact situation that we just talked yeah. about.
0: It's, it's a callback. It's great.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Look at
0: us. <laughs> We're consistent internally within <laughs> one podcast episode.
1: So in the WSDL, they define kind of a set of rules of how you can interact with the API. And mm-hmm. there's a lot more to a WSDL that I don't really have like a very good understanding of, but... Basically, you can take a WSDL and then somehow, like, automatically generate a set of files for, like, what routes you can call. And it seems Mm -hmm. like every SOAP API can define their own routes and, like, how they're going to interact, like, how you're going to interact with the server. So that was interesting. Yep. Also, the way that their API is written is very opaque. Like, it's very hard to see what information you get from where, how you can update information. And it's also hard to see what data you're going to get back. Right. And Scala has all this type information, Mm. which is awesome. So it was really interesting to have this API, which kind of just throws back data in any form, talk to this very strongly typed system that I think worked really well for us, actually. Mm. Because we would keep hitting the SOAP API, and Scala would be like, nope, wrong type. Nope, wrong type. (laughs)
0: So Scala's type system was acting as like a safety mechanism there?
1: Yeah, exactly. Where I think that we could have gotten really far really quickly in Rails and just had all these bugs that we didn't realize because mm-hmm. we just didn't realize the data was different, yep. that it was coming back in a different form. So that was very cool.
0: So that that aspect, the choice of Scala to give you the, the mm-hmm. type safety and the sort of stronger correctness guarantees, yeah. thumbs up on that the choice to not use Play, which was the more established framework. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're also, you feel good about that one as well.
1: I feel good about that one as well because the web views that we were building out were pretty simple. Mm -hmm. So Play would have given us all these features that we didn't really use, didn't really need. Mm -hmm. So our project just feels a lot slimmer. And I think maybe if we had had a full web front end that we wanted to build out, mm-hmm. then maybe I would have chosen Play, but...
0: But a lot of the work that you were doing was in the, like, data synchronization to that SOAP Exactly. API. Right. That's
1: where we've spent primarily well, most of our time.
0: Gotcha. That all makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I really like HTTP4S can't really articulate very well why i like it
0: sometimes it's just a feeling you know yeah it's just anything like a lack of negatives can often be enough to be like it works and i don't have any complaints therefore i love it yeah is sometimes how i will describe a library so
1: that's definitely how i feel
0: yeah which like software often doesn't work it turns out which is a rough aspect of our industry (laughs) so the fact that something it kind of does what it says and doesn't error so cool i like it a lot
1: it's Good stuff. And I think like a
0: simpler surface area and things like that, that probably made it a little bit more approachable. Mm -hmm. Likely, I'm guessing that it was reasonably well documented by virtue of the fact that it's got a small surface area. Therefore, it's it's an easier Mm -hmm. target to hit of documenting that.
1: It is a very powerful library. It's Mm -hmm. just that like the traditional features that you would have gotten from Rails, like helpers and stuff, those are a little slimmer. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a lot of stuff there that you can do with it. Gotcha. Yeah. So we have this soap API mm-hmm. that we've been using. And we have um, REST APIs that yes. I've worked yep. with. But actually, you introduced me to an interesting technology that I know that you like a lot, mm-hmm. which is GraphQL.
0: Yep, seems to be my thing these days. And I feel like it's going to come up a bit on the podcast. But I am definitely a fan. I, I like GraphQL. Now, you've spent a bit of time across a few different things on it now. Mm-hmm.
1: The first product that we were really on together for like any appreciable amount of time you had introduced GraphQL. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience seeing it being used and I really liked it. I liked the structure of like clients asking for what they needed as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, having a predefined response that you were sending back. And we it had been on a rail stack, right? So you had made these GraphQL types.
0: Types. Quote, unquote. <laughs> GraphQL types were real, but then they were in Ruby and Rails, which... Meh.
1: Exactly. So you were forming stuff out of models, mm-hmm. but they weren't like strongly defined, yep. really. And so I started a project with a few other developers at Thoughtbot that is in Scala with GraphQL,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which... I think is hugely exciting.
0: I'm extremely jealous of this because <laughs> I've been following the library that you're using, mm-hmm. uh, which is called Sangria. Mm-hmm. That is the sort of de facto answer to how you build GraphQL servers in Scala. And it looks spectacular from everything that I've seen of it, but I uh-huh. haven't gotten a chance to try it out for real. So I'm, I'm jealous. Frankly.
1: Yeah. I mean, don't be too jealous because we're like just really getting into it. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. And there'll be more Fridays. I can probably find my way. I know where to find you. Yeah, so, that's true. Yeah.
1: And I definitely currently have questions for you. <laughs> one of which is I have a database mm-hmm. and I have some GraphQL types, Yep. right? And I guess this is like kind of relevant to maybe just any GraphQL implementation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How does GraphQL understand like how to pull data?
0: From your database? Yeah. Short answer, it doesn't.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: This is one of the things that I think is particularly subtle about GraphQL is like, what is GraphQL? Yeah. yeah. And one of the ways that I've attempted to describe it is more by what it isn't. Okay. So GraphQL is not a transfer protocol. Mm -hmm. It is not HTTP or anything like that. We're still going to be using HTTP. We're going to use a subset of it because we're being weird about it. But basically, there's a single request that's made to the server. You hit the endpoint, you get the data back. So we're still using HTTP. Everything's normal there. You're Mm -hmm. not required to, but typically that's what's happening. Okay. It's also not a serialization format. So typically we're using JSON. Mm -hmm. We'll take whatever the query is, get some data, and then turn it into JSON and send it over the wire. Yeah. Again, not a requirement. We could use weirder stuff like a binary uh, serialization format if we wanted to really compact things down. Okay. But I almost every implementation I've seen uses JSON. So mm-hmm. it is not that. It is also not your database layer in any way. So there's no requirement for a graph database or anything like it. We're able to use most of the implementations I've seen are using Postgres because most of the apps that we work with use Postgres. Yep. And traditional table based everything there so the alternative would be something like i want to say neo4j is the one that i'm thinking of but it's a a graph database specifically okay okay don't need that that's not the thing additionally yes i've heard of people actually trying it and that's an interesting thing and Mm -hmm. but that is definitely not a requirement yeah It's also not your model layer. So in a Rails app, you'll typically still have all of your database models, your your active record, application record, I guess, are the instances that they are. Uh And those are wrapping database tables or having any sort of query object. Those are still things. So basically... GraphQL sort of sits right in the middle as mm-hmm. it'll replace part of the routing and controller layer within yeah. a Rails app specifically. Mm-hmm. So a request comes in with this structured payload of a query. It's mm-hmm. serialized. It's like JSON plus its own query string format. Yeah. Then there's a whole bunch of code that parses, evaluates, validates, and then eventually hands off to a sequence of resolvers to mm-hmm. figure out where to get the data. Uh, but it's basically like there's a bunch of stuff that any GraphQL library is going to do for you, that mm-hmm. parsing and validation, yeah. and ensuring that you're like adhering to the types that you were saying. Okay. But after that, it mm-hmm. hands it to you and says, like, somebody wants a user.
1: Yeah, and you uh, resolve. Right. Oh,
0: and that resolution, great. the uh-huh. resolver that you're writing, is either going to call user.find in a mm-hmm. Rails app and yeah. find by ID, or... Say you're in a microservices type architecture, which yeah. two episodes ago, I talked about my feelings on that. So like, I don't <laughs> know, maybe don't. But if you are, if you happen to find yourself in that place, mm-hmm. then you could hit the user service. And that could be a REST API call that you're making. Okay. And your GraphQL API is wrapping up all of that and hiding those details, the microservice yeah. fracturing and actually presenting a unified front back out. Mm-hmm. So it can be a database call. It can be pulling from any sort of cache. It can be pulling from a REST API. Yeah but it's anything and, and it's 100% on you to implement that. Okay. So GraphQL doesn't really know anything about that. All
1: right, that makes so much sense. That's like something that I had seen those resolver functions and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you like put the da- you tell it where to get the data and right. then now it kind of just had a great clicking moment.
0: Awesome, that's, yeah. uh, that's the goal with the podcast here <laughs> is to have as many of those clicking moments as, uh, as we can.
1: The Scala implementation of GraphQL makes me imagine this really beautiful future where I have some Scala types, mm-hmm. and Sangria has this excellent thing where you have to define GraphQL types that it exposes, mm-hmm. but if you have a Scala type, you can use these macros to just derive what the type should be based on your Scala type, right, which I think is amazing. So I could have Scala types, use a bunch of macros, expose some GraphQL types. And then the client would talk to my GraphQL API mm-hmm. and would have a direct understanding of what my ER diagram looks like. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but say you have a bug in one of your endpoints and like an iOS developer comes to you and it's like, oh, like this status is incorrect. It should mm-hmm. be something else. And what you're doing under the hood in your API is you have like a wrapper that just like, grabs the like various pieces from different mm-hmm. models to kind of assemble like what the response should look like. And so when they tell you that a status is incorrect, you kind of have to go in and dig through what that right. means. Now an iOS developer will come to me and be like, oh, this status on this particular type is mm-hmm. wrong. And I'm like, oh, this map's directly back. Directly, yep. Yeah. That to me is hugely exciting.
0: I share that excitement. Mm -hmm. There's all of the standard benefits, but I think one of the things that I'm particularly excited about Mm -hmm. is as I start to have conversations with people about the shape of the GraphQL API, it almost feels like this is a layer that's been missing the whole time. Mm. Like we had models and we had the database tables, but particularly in Rails, anything that's in your database is directly exposed as a method or multiple methods on those active record objects. And the shape of your data store tends to sort of spread out and be coupled everywhere throughout your application. Mm-hmm. Something that we'll often try and push back a little bit on, try and hide things within methods, hide some of the active record finder query stuff so you're not mm-hmm. using it everywhere, but it's just so easy to do. Yeah. With yeah. GraphQL, you end up introducing this purposeful named layer that is distinct. It's one additional layer in your application. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. And then I think what you're describing is the idea of having the types flow through all of Mm -hmm. these layers. Yep. And that's, yeah, that's kind of the dream. It's really interesting in that most of the work that I've done in GraphQL Mm -hmm. was a Rails app talking to a JavaScript client.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: neither of them have (laughs) types as far as I know. Yeah, so you're
1: just like forming a layer to things that are kind of just amorphous. I mean, they're not. They like Rails Uh, models. They're a little bit of, (laughs) yeah, no.
0: Method missing is a pretty amorphous way to build some stuff. But yes, particularly if you go all the way back to the database because you were talking about like we've got types there. Mm -hmm. The database definitely knows about the types of things. Exactly. Then we go through a Rails layer. We lose some types. But then we go through the GraphQL layer. We add some types back. Then we go into JavaScript land. And obviously no types there. But the things that are particularly interesting to me are thinking about ways that we can maintain some of that type safety. So Scala and Sangria as a way Mm -hmm. to build GraphQL APIs is very interesting to me. Similarly, on the client side, uh, using TypeScript as a language, and Mm -hmm. there's some really great things that are going on where you can take a GraphQL query in Uh a React component, run a little bit of generator code, and it will spit out the relevant record type, essentially, to match Mm -hmm. with that. So it's it's like, I already know the type of the thing that you're going to get back because it's informed by the schema. The schema enforces the valid range of types that we can see here. So we can do that. And I don't have to write it now. I can have that auto-generated and validated and Mm -hmm. even... I can have the c i process manually update that every time we build to make sure we're always in sync with current production or whatever it is we want to yeah. do and yeah there's some there's some very interesting stuff mm-hmm. in, I'd be in interested
1: to hear about what it's like for a mobile developer to work mm-hmm. with GraphqL if it's you know the promised land that we're really excited about or yeah. If it's a little more complicated than that.
0: I also would be very interested. The dream that I have in mind for GraphQL is the like power it gives to a platform. So like, if you're building an app mm-hmm. and it's got a single web interface, like well, let's probably build that in Rails and keep it simple. Yeah. But when you start to build out a platform, I think that's gonna have many different facets, many different types of clients. Mm-hmm. When I say clients, I mean like an iOS client, an Android client, a web view, but there's also this other web view because it's a <laughs> two-sided marketplace. And uh-huh. then there's this third one, and weirdly there's even this fourth one and each of those might have their own ios and android apps and suddenly it's like okay yep gotcha (laughs) and having graphql at the center of that being like sort of the single source of truth Mm -hmm. and then allowing those types to flow out and doing all of those nice things that's the dream i'm also interested to hear how it goes for mobile developers mostly Mm -hmm. I've, i've heard good things though anecdotally particularly i think facebook uses it inside of their ios app and their android app and Everything is built on top of it now, and that works out really well. And they have code mm-hmm. gen and things built on top of it to make that whole process a little more seamless. Mm-hmm. But I would love to see, like, right now, the project that you're working on is building a GraphQL API that we have a mobile app. Mm-hmm. We're, we're rebuilding all the things at once, <laughs> which is the thing that, I don't know, that's a lot to do, but here we are. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no, we maybe no, wouldn't recommend lot. it it's to a lot. client, but <laughs> when it's fun Friday time, then uh, we can yep. boil the sea a bit. But yeah.
1: We're actually right now only building the GraphQL part of it. Mm-hmm. Nothing is consuming it. So we're going in steps. We're not doing everything at once. Right. This project is called Purple Train, and it's definitely the project that we keep rebuilding in different technologies. We do.
0: Yeah. Indeed. I forget what... I think mm-hmm. the first version was React Native. Yeah. I'm pretty sure of that. And then it went to Elm Native UI, which I think is the current version that's in the store. That's true. And then I think we've built a Swift and Kotlin version of it.
1: Exactly. I know that there are two na- like native versions. yeah yep.
0: But I don't think those are live on any devices. I think we built those as sort of adventures. It's mm-hmm. the nature of the, the app is it's very simple and yeah. yet non-trivial. And exactly. that's sort of a sweet spot to have. And like people actually, I use it on a daily basis, mm-hmm. it turns out.
1: People write us email about the app.
0: <laughs> we got a voicemail.
1: That's never an, on an instinct. The phone. <laughs> that's never an instinct that I've had where like an app is broken and <sighs> I call someone about it. Yep. An app is broken and I'm like, oh man, there's nothing. Well, that's nothing just the
0: internet now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I am out of options.
0: Yep, too bad. I guess I'll have to build my own. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then when we fixed it, mm-hmm. we also got an email. Yep. They, they thanked us.
0: It's a weird world. I don't just, know, maybe we should thank more people when they fix things and talk to talk to more humans.
1: Yeah, do you think that we aren't empathetic enough with the way that we use technology?
0: Young folks on the internet, yeah, anyone on the internet, really. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's probably a little bit of a lack of empathy.
1: We just get angry at these amazing devices we that are do. in our pockets.
0: I mentioned this earlier too today, but I sort of stopped using Twitter at the beginning of the year. I mm-hmm. decided this doesn't feel right to me. I found myself agitated whenever I would read Twitter. I also felt like it was really leaning into the sort of 24-hour news cycle thing that just doesn't feel like the right way to interact with those sort of issues.
1: Yeah, those sort of like very nuanced stories that are...
0: And instead we get 140-character soundbite sort of things like, ah, now I have to go research whether or not any of this is true. (laughs) Uh, This (laughs) is the whole thing, and I just feel angry right now. Yeah, like
1: it's pulled at my emotions, but I know that like there's definitely more to this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But at the same time, I find the discussions in the tech worlds are so valuable on Twitter. People mm-hmm. talking about, like, I built this thing, and it's new. You should try it. And other people exactly. are like, that's awesome. I tried it. I found a bug. Oh, cool. We can fix it. Like, yeah. There seem to be really positive, useful conversations, mm-hmm. particularly in the world of technology that we work in. And, I had found that to be a very useful way to keep up to date with them, yeah. but then I sort of dropped everything. And now, particularly as I'm starting to you know, talk on the podcast, I wanna be able to have conversations in public more. I also really believe in the idea of working in public, of not only showing mm. perfect, polished, final things.
1: Oh, I think that's so important. Like I the struggle process. with yeah. it a
0: lot, yeah. but it's a thing that I believe in. And mm-hmm. when others do it, I'm so grateful to them for being like, thank you for showing the process and for being a real human yeah. in a more public space. So I've been trying to dip my toe back into the, the waters of Twitter. Yeah, It's a complicated space, <laughs> turns out. Um, it's hard
1: to like, curate it in a way uh, yeah. that gives you kind of like the positive aspects that you're looking for w- yeah. while filtering out. All of this, like sensationalist, very angry.
0: There's also a really interesting thing that happens where there are certain individuals that I'll follow who both provide really meaningful tech sort of things they're producing new work they're doing really novel things they have mm-hmm. useful commentary on uh, technological changes that are happening but they also talk a lot about other topics and i'm certainly not someone who's like you should stick to your technology topic i deeply <laughs> Only disagree have opinions yeah. on yeah everybody is a real full complete human and i think yeah. that's a thing that i encourage and again like the working in public like be. A human, That's good. I like humans. Uh But for me, I found that that is not a way that I want to – like, I don't want to consume that. Sure. And I think I feel fine with the idea of Twitter as sort of a pub-sub mechanism. Like, people can publish anything they want, and Mm -hmm. that's a great, valuable aspect of it. Mm -hmm. But I also want to be able to subscribe to anything I want. And that's not necessarily the entirety of what someone's saying.
1: Exactly.
0: So I've I've thought about the technological solution to this, uh, which is to build a fancy Twitter client that – does sentiment analysis and topical analysis and filters out anything that isn't like vaguely happy tweets about tech. Mm-hmm. As I say that out loud, I'm like, man, am I just. Am I. <laughs> Chris do I need only to... wants to
1: live in paradise where everything is good all the time. No, no, no. It's more like filtering out just, I don't know.
0: I believe this. strongly in the less time or space you have to talk about something, the more you should default to positive. The more time and space Mm -hmm. you have to talk about something, I think negative opinions require so much more nuance that, Mm -hmm. like, I think a podcast is perhaps a good place to explore more criticism, negativity, things like that because you can talk about it. You can dig in a little bit. But sure. Twitter is a terrible place <laughs> I think for negative discussions. I think they tend to devolve, but it's it's great for positive stuff in my mind or for sharing or for learning or for all of that.
1: Yeah, it's great to get kind of like a soundbite to see like, oh, I might be interested right. in this thing. It's not great for extended policy discussions. <laughs>
0: I think Maybe. that uh, that is a perfect way to phrase it. <laughs> so I'm still searching for how to do that. I've tried going through now and, like, making lists or muting people or things. But mm-hmm. I still, like, I really want to find a way to, like, find my Twitter, find truly the version that I want. Yeah. It's inherent to Twitter that you're sort of curating a group of people that you follow. But I want to I be able to dial up that curation to 11. Yeah. I don't want to write this software because then I have to maintain it. <laughs> and there's just – there's so much software to write. I almost got a group to write it for our current hackathon thing that we're doing. I but love that, this is
1: like you're trying to like, get people to get excited about this project and then you'll be like, all right, go off.
0: As listeners to this podcast for any length of time will know, Derek Pryor, one of the former hosts of the show, used to do that to me on a regular basis. Oh, right. they would just be like, man, I really, I really wish there were a Vim plugin to do this. And I'd be like, oh, oh interesting, challenge accepted. <laughs> he was excellent at nerd sniping me, as the case would be. So yeah, I'm trying to pay forward the nerd sniping. That's a thing, I think. Sure.
1: I can't wait until you find your like grasshopper who'll be like, I could do that. <laughs>
0: we were so close. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep poking around with this and I'll certainly share if, uh, mm-hmm. if I come up with anything useful here yeah. on the podcast. But
1: talking about Derek getting you to build things in Vim, there are a lot of things that I enjoy about pairing with you. But definitely those moments when you'd pause and be like, Rachel, you just typed all of these keys. <laughs> you could have done it in two keystrokes. So handy.
0: I do like Vim, I'll be honest about that.
1: Also, for people who haven't paired with you, sometimes you'll be pairing with Chris, and he'll stop typing, and he'll just, he'll, like, wait a second, and then he'll type, like, a few keystrokes, and just, the file will just shift, and just morph, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, it's so, it's very cool. That's... Anyway.
0: That makes me happy because I've spent some time <laughs> working on these. Perhaps an outsized amount of time, uh, some would say, but it's sort of like Vim and workflow sort of things end up in my hobby space as well. Mm, I try yeah. to be purposeful about not letting them bleed into like client time. I think that's that's precious and I should be working on the thing, but yeah. then I'll sometimes like write a note to myself of, like, I didn't like how long it took me to do this thing in Vim today, so here's a note <laughs> for future me, and then future me gets to work on that. Oh, problem, that's but. so
1: useful because you know what I find hard is I'll be you know just coding along and I'll be like, oh, there's definitely a better way. Mm-hmm. There's definitely like a workflow improvement there. Yeah, won't write it down. Just floats out of my mind, and then I kind of plateau in yep. my in my workflow where it's like fine right now, it's workable, mm-hmm. but it's not really like continuously improving, right. which is something I would like.
0: I try and capture them, and then I also try and keep a list that I'm reprioritizing regularly of like, Mm -hmm. yes, I'm... You know what? Now that I think about it, I really do feel that pain a bunch. Yeah. And because I'm feeling it a bunch, it has crossed the threshold into this is valuable for me to try and Mm -hmm. automate or improve or or build something around. Uh, If you're wondering, yes, I have spent a bunch of time building the (laughs) utility that I use to capture those sort of thoughts without losing context (laughs) on the thing that I'm working on. It's not perfect. There's more Uh work to be done.
1: Do you find it hard like you have this problem that you face all the time. Mm-hmm. So you come up with some macro or keyboard shortcut that'll help you avoid that. Mm-hmm. Do you find it hard to like integrate that shortcut, to remember it, to go back to it?
0: sometimes. That's actually, I think, a really good heuristic for whether or not I keep a given piece of automation. So I might Mm -hmm. write some code, and I'm like, oh, cool, I made this thing that works, but I forget to use it. And if I recognize that I've not used it in Mm -hmm. months, I'll typically just delete it at that point, because all code has a cost. This is a thing that I I feel pretty strong about. Okay. So if you're not using code, we should delete it. And that holds true even for my preciously built (laughs) little workflow optimizations.
1: If you make like a small keyboard alias, and you forget to use it most of the time, then like every once in a while you use it. Mm -hmm. Would you delete that? Does that hurt you?
0: It's taking up space in the like the namespace of potential mappings. Like there's only so many, even in Vim, which has a lot of space, there's still a limited space. So Uh I sort of want it to be the list of things that I actually use. I'm not that actively going. I'm not like once a week I go (laughs) and I file down the thing. No, it's more if I happen to be adding something to the file that's adjacent to it. I'm like, oh man, I never use that. Whatever. Mm -hmm. I'll just delete that now. Yeah. Uh, But it's not more purposeful than that. Okay. But yeah, it's that, um, seem, that
1: seems fair.
0: Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly, I've thought a bunch about how I think about <laughs> building workflow optimizations. Mm. But I think we can probably leave that for a future discussion and wrap it up here. Yeah. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an awesome conversation.
1: Thank you, Chris. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I've had fun.
0: Show notes for this episode can be found at bike shed.fm slash one six eight. If you enjoyed this show or any of our other episodes, please leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at, at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next bike shed. This podcast was brought to you by Thoughtbot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.